Well, good morning, everybody. You all uh, got the last minute change of venue, looks like. Um, so we're glad. <laughs> we're glad. Um, I also see some new faces, so thanks for coming this morning. Welcome. We're glad you're here. And um, we hope more than anything this morning that God is revealed to you through the worship of the saints. Um, because we were going to be at Christ the King this morning, I have to apologize. I don't have slides, so you guys are just going to have to listen to me. Um, so sorry for the uh, inconvenience there. Um, our passage this morning is going to be Matthew 22, um, verses 41 through 46. So if you want to flip to that phone, your own Bibles, or we have um, Bibles in the racks in front of you, we use the, uh, the blue ones, the ESV but the other ones are just as good, so if you have a preference, go ahead. Again, that's Matthew 22, 41 through 46. I have water here. As we, uh, as we get there, flip to that, I want to start this morning with a, uh, a question, and it's a pretty vague general question, and it, it's about questions, why do we even have questions? Why do we ask questions? What's the point? Usually, it's to get answers, sometimes at least. And that's a good and even a noble reason to ask a question, right? To get an answer in humility to say, you know what? I don't know. I don't know the answer to this thing. And maybe I should ask somebody who does. Are there bad reasons for asking questions? Well, yeah. We do well to remember that sin entered the world through a question. Did God really say? But the last couple weeks, if you've been with us, we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew and we've seen a couple really bad questions. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians have come to Jesus and asked him questions not to learn from him, but to try and trick him to trip him up, to catch him in his own words. Questions, however, are a favorite tool of Jesus in his teaching. As we go through the New Testament, we see that there's really two methods of teaching that Jesus employs. He uses parables a lot, and he uses questions. Now, he does other things, right? But those are his two favorites. Particularly, the Gospel of John has always seemed to me to be a questioning gospel, a gospel where Jesus is just asking question after question of the people he's trying to teach. He's drawing out their assumptions and bringing them face to face with reality. So this morning, we're going to be looking at the last question in this almost extended Q&A session that's been happening in the temple grounds, but this time, it's going to be Jesus that brings the question. And we're going to see that the character of Jesus' question is much different from the character of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Herodians' questions. Let's read that this morning. Again, it's Matthew 22, verses 41 through 46. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit 
at my right hand and until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Let's pray before we learn this morning. Father God, I'm thankful for all of your children that you've brought here this morning. I pray that you open minds and hearts and that in something I say they would learn something of you and that as a result of being here this morning they would grow closer in a relationship with you. They would see your son clearer and they'd be more filled by your spirit. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm just remembering that before I walked up here, Daniel talked to me and said, hey, you might want to introduce yourself because you usually don't, and I totally forgot to do that. So, hi, I'm Madison, I'm our pastoral intern here, and I have the privilege of preaching to you guys every once in a while. Um, last week, Dan when Daniel preached, he had a um, pretty good question. He was covering um, the last passage in Matthew, and it was a lawyer who brought Jesus a question concerning the greatest commandment in the law. And Daniel asked a question which was basically, why did this lawyer choose this question to ask? What was the point? What did he have to gain from this question? And I'd like to ask the same question this morning about the question that Jesus poses. Why did he choose this question? He only says one thing in answer to the Pharisees here after being, having questions hurled at him for quite a while. He's the son of God and he's speaking of the word of God and he chooses this question. Why? What's the point? Well, one of the first things we notice is that it's a multi-part question. It's not just one question. Right up front, Jesus wants to establish the common ground. He wants to make sure that him and the Pharisees are on the same page. Now this is something the Pharisees and the Sadducees had been pretty bad at, right? If we look back at some of the questions they asked Jesus, multiple times Jesus has to cut through their question to tell them why it's a bad question. He has to say, actually, the reason you're asking this question, the assumptions that you have underlying it, are actually wrong. So Jesus doesn't want to assume that everyone's on the same page. So he builds this foundation up, this shared, these shared assumptions from the ground up, he builds them. And he starts with kind of a softball question. He says, whose son is the Messiah? And at the time, it was a pretty well-answered and well-known answer to this question. The Pharisees and the bulk of the Jewish people alike would have the same answer, the son of David. So Jesus asks and the Pharisees say, well, the Messiah is the son of David. And then Jesus comes in with the proverbial left hook. He says, well, how then 
is it that David calls the Messiah Lord? How does he refer to one of his own descendants as superior to him? The word Lord is also translated master in some translations. Now here, Jesus is quoting Psalm 110, but even in this small sentence, there's a bunch of other assumptions he's making. He's assuming that they're on the same page about a whole lot of stuff. There's really three things. First, he's assuming that they both believe that David wrote Psalm 110. Now, this is more of a question from modern scholars and modern critics, but it's important to note that Jesus and the Pharisees both agree that David wrote Psalm 110. Another thing is that David wrote by the Spirit. Now, assuredly, Jesus and the Pharisees both had a different understanding of what the Spirit was and how it worked. But they can at least agree on the fact that Psalm 110 is true. It's not false. It's not fictitious. It's speaking of true things. So then, when Jesus brings his question, they can't say, oh, well, actually, we don't think Psalm 110 is true. We think David had a little too much wine before he wrote that one, right? No, they believe it's true. It's a shared assumption. The last shared assumption is that Psalm 110 is a messianic psalm, that it's speaking of the Messiah. That's no small thing, but they were in agreement on this, that Psalm 110 is speaking of the coming Messiah. Now, in the midst of all of this agreement, Jesus brings up a point of confusion, a, a question. How is it that you can then say that Jesus, that, excuse me, how is it that you can say that David calls one of his own descendants Lord? Especially in a culture where parental authority was given such high value. Right? It would, it would be unthinkable for a descendant to refer to, to be referred to as a master or lord by someone who is above them in lineage, much less the most important king in Israel's history, right? This is King David we're talking about. It's not some of the, one of the throwaway kings in like Chronicles or something. This is King David. This is the king of Israel. How is it that his, one of his descendants can be greater than him? So we have two options here, right? If we have a bunch of facts, a bunch of truths, and then in the midst of them arises something that we don't understand, something that seems contradictory. We have two options. The first one is that maybe one of the facts is wrong. Well, that's not the case because they all agree on all of the facts. Well, the second option is that maybe we're missing some information, right? Maybe there's a fact that we haven't considered or that we just don't know. Interestingly, the Pharisees don't make that jump. They hear Jesus' question and they're like, okay, we agree on all these different points, but they don't get to the next point, the point of, hey, maybe there's something that we don't know. Maybe there's something we don't understand. Why don't they get there? What's stopping them from getting there? Why don't they have any more questions for Jesus? I'm assuming at some point, some of us have heard the term cognitive dissonance. 
I'll, I have a dictionary definition, well, an internet definition here. The state of having inconsistent thoughts, beliefs, or attitudes, especially as relating to the behavioral decisions and attitude change. Now, essentially, it's what happens when we believe and live lies. It's what happens when you choose to contradict what would otherwise be plain and clear to you because of your love for something else. And that's kind of where the Pharisees are here. They're confronted with an obvious hole in their teaching, and instead of stepping back and saying, oh, this guy might have something here, let's reconsider our position. No, they say, we're going to withdraw. We're not going to ask any more questions. And that, to me, is the saddest part of this entire passage. Not sad in the way of like, I'm discouraging you, oh, that's sad. No, it's like, it's a really mournful thing that these people are standing in front of the Son of God, the one who would willingly be tortured and be killed for their good and their salvation, and they don't have any questions for him. That's sad. That's really sad. If we turn to second, you don't have to turn there, but if you turn to second Corinthians chapter three, Paul gives us a little bit of a hint as to what's going on here. This is second Corinthians three, twelve through fifteen. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. You see, if you remember In Exodus, Moses ascends to the top of Mount Sinai and he communes with God. And as a result of being in such close fellowship with God, his face is glowing. It's reverberating with God's glory. And he comes back down from Mount Sinai and the Israelites are afraid of that. They say, put a veil over your face. We don't want to see that. They're scared for their own destruction. Paul goes on to say, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. There's a stubbornness there, a hard-heartedness. Unless we think it's just the Jews who have this, Paul calls all of us out in Romans 1. In verse 19, verses 18 and 19, he says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. It's obvious because God has shown it to them. So again, like Moses coming down from the mountain, like the Israelites seeing what is plain and obvious and good and amazing, the glory of God, in our unrighteousness, we're going to suppress that. We're going to hide. We are going to hide ourselves from that. We're going to put a veil over our hearts. We humans have this tendency, this primal urge to shrink back to want to define our own truth, to trust ourselves and our flesh 
our own power, our intellect. And this is our natural state. We depend on ourselves. We try things in our own power. And the Bible has two categories for this kind of self-trust. Idolatry and slavery. Again, there is two categories for this kind of self-trust and self-reliance. It's idolatry and slavery. Paul connects both these things just a little bit further in that Romans passage we just read. In verses 22 and 20 through 25, he says this, Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. When we worship ourselves, we trust ourselves, we rely on ourselves, we undoubtedly become slaves to ourselves, to our flesh, to the sin that resides within us. Jesus makes this a little more blunt in the Gospel of John. In chapter 8, verse 34, he says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So why does Jesus ask the question that he asks? What's the point? The point is this, that this is the only question that can lift that veil from our hearts. The answer to this question is the only question that can save us from our bondage to sin. That missing information that we were talking about, the fact that wasn't in the equation, was that the Messiah is also the Son of God, not just the Son of David, he's both. New Testament commentator Michael Green has this to say concerning this question, why Jesus was asking. He says, Jesus is trying to open their eyes to the futility of hope, which does not rise above the human level. The futility of a messianic hope that doesn't rise above the human level. We want to be able to save ourselves. In reality, we, meet, we need something much more than ourselves. We need a Messiah that's not just the son of David, but the son of God. We need Jesus. The same Jesus that in John 15, 5 says this, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. He doesn't leave any room for anything there, really. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That's the point of his question. The Pharisees, being slaves to their flesh, reliant on their own intellect, their own strength. And because of their trust in themselves, they can't see their need for Jesus. They worship themselves and are thus slaves to themselves.
I know there's a lot of um, Marvel movies and Marvel TV shows and whatever coming out. Almost every day it seems like there's a new, there's a new Marvel entity, right? And I, sometimes it's good to go back to the old ones. The first uh, Avengers movie came out in 2012. It's almost, almost 10 years ago now, which seems insane to me. I was in high school, but there's a quote in that movie that I think summarizes this really well. If you haven't seen the movie, the main villain, his name is Loki, and he's walking down the steps of, I think it's a museum, I can't quite remember. I didn't do my homework, watch the movie before the sermon, but um, he's walking down the museum steps, and the crowds, the, hum the people in front of him are terrified, and they cower and they basically kneel in front of him. And he says this at that point, is this not simpler? Is this not your natural state? It's the unspoken truth of humanity that you crave subjugation. The bright lure of freedom diminishes your life's joy in a mad scramble for power and for identity. You were made to be ruled. In the end, you will always kneel. I don't necessarily want to make it a habit to agree with Marvel villains. <laughs> but I think he's got a point, right? And if you don't really take him, take John Calvin's word, right? John Calvin said that the human heart is an idle factory. We're always producing something to worship. In the end, we will always kneel. The next point in this scene in the movie as Loki's saying this, this old man stands up in defiance and he looks at Loki and he says, not to men like you. Let's not submit ourselves to the slavery in service of the masters of men and women like ourselves. We are cruel masters. We really are. Serving our flesh, our desires, trusting in ourselves ultimately leads to death. Lest, to, lest we're tempted to think we're not bad masters, let me ask, is anyone here this morning caught in a cycle of self-betterment? You know, a cycle of self-help and self-improvement where really you're just trusting in your own strength and your own power to lift yourself out of your own sin? How's that working out? It's not working out really well for me, I'll be honest. Over the last couple months, I've been learning that it's not something that can happen in my own power. It's a sad thing to say, but statistically, there's probably a few people in here that have some sort of addiction to the flesh. Whether it's porn, food, drink, or drugs, If anyone's been in slavery to an addiction like this, we know that we can't get out of it by ourselves, not in our own power. Those are hard masters to break. Anything we try to do, we do in vain if it's not actually Jesus doing it. It's in beholding the glory of Jesus and allowing his spirit to transform us that we're able to do anything. Let me read that 
2 Corinthians passage again. I'm going to go a little further this time. This is, again, 2 Corinthians 3, 14 through 18. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Where before we had slavery, now we have freedom. And Paul goes even further. He says, not only do we have freedom, we're slaves to righteousness. Through the Holy Spirit, we can actually do things worthwhile in service to our king. Idolatry, we're going to worship something. We are. That's how we're wired. That's how we're created. Let's worship the right thing. So what's required of us when we undoubtedly get to this place? Repentance. And not just a one-time transaction. Continual lifelong posture of repentance. Let me share a quick pilgrim moment with you, something coming out of my own walk. Second Corinthians 7.10 says this, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Listen to your guilt, but don't listen to your shame. Guilt's a tool to bring you back to Jesus. Anything past that, anything that keeps you down, anything that discourages you from turning to your Savior, that's shame. It's of the world, it's of the flesh, and it's of the devil. We need repentance. We need faith. One of my favorite Old Testament scholars defines faith as believing loyalty. Essentially, we need to stop walking in the direction we're walking, turn around and walk in the right direction and commit ourselves to that path. There are consequences to living out of our own power. Like I already said, it usually ends with us digging and then lying in our own graves. But it can also bring the wrath of God upon us. Like I said, this is the last question in this section of Scripture. And right after this, Jesus begins a series of seven woes proclaimed against the Pharisee. Pharisees. I don't think it's necessarily a coincidence that these woes, these proclamations of despair, come after the Pharisees can't answer this question. Come after they refuse to see Jesus. Jesus is calling us to a life of discipleship. 
He's begging us to trust him and not to trust in our own strength. Don't be like the Pharisees here who in finding that Jesus' answer required them to abandon their self-reliance, turned away, withdrew, and didn't ask any more questions. In the fellowship of the body, along with your brothers and sisters, bring the hard questions of life to God. Why do you hide yourself? Why have you forsaken me? What is the measure of my days? Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why should I fear in times of trouble? How long, O Lord, where is your steadfast love? How shall we sing the Lord's song? Those are all direct quotes from the Psalms. The same Psalms that Jesus prayed here in his life on earth. Come to Jesus with the hardest questions and be ready to rely on him fully and to trust him completely for their answer and their fulfillment. Well, as, as I invite the band back up for a time of worship and communion, I'd like to read an extended, well, I say extended. It's a little bit of a longer quote. Uh, it's from J.C. Ryle, who's a, I think, eight, 19th century expositor of the New Testament and the Old Testament, I think. I'd like to share this quote with you and then pray with you if I could. Let's not leave these verses without making a practical use of our Lord's solemn question. What do we think of Christ? What do we think of his person and his offices? What do we think of his life and what do we think of his death for us on the cross? What do we think of his resurrection, ascension, and intercession for us at the right hand of God? Have we tasted that he is gracious? Have we laid hold on him by faith? Have we found by experience that he is precious to our souls? Can we truly say that he is my redeemer and my savior, my shepherd and my friend? These are serious inquiries May we never rest until we can give a satisfactory answer to them. It will not profit us to read about Christ if we are not joined to him by living faith. Once more then, let us test our religion by this question. What think we of Christ? Let's pray this morning. Father God, it's almost insidious how quickly and easily we start to rely on our own strength. How easily we start to ask questions of you and not to you. But I pray that this morning, 
we turn from that way. We turn from reliance on ourselves to reliance on you. I pray that you help us see you more clearly. I pray that you lift the veil from our hearts. In the name of your Son, we pray these things.